0: Howdy, howdy.
1: Hello. How's it going?
0: It's pretty good. It's not too bad today. Had some had some sick open mat time at the jujitsu, but you know,
1: nice. I've been looking into like working out, like wrestling in particular. Yes,
0: like watching, you should do wrestling.
1: Watching a lot of UC. You. Yeah, or what is it? UFC? UFC clips? Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um I don't know if I can (laughs) because um I got into a car accident and I have like constant problems with like my lower neck. Right. And so I don't know. I'll try it out one day, hopefully. Um but it's a lot of like pushing and tugging on people. I don't know if my body can handle that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got you. Most places most gyms, you can kind of just be like, look, you know, I'm new. I got this lingering injury, we, you know, I think most people will kind of like just be like, "Oh, okay, you know, we'll, we'll take it light" kind of thing. Yeah. Like you'll still That's get true. something from it. It's just that you won't get injured in the process. Some places do not pass that vibe check and you should move on, uh but some places are pretty chill.
1: Yeah. Um I don't know if I could do jujitsu. <laughs> Jiu Jitsu seems like um, at least from what I can tell, it seems like it you're very coordinated in jujitsu.
0: Yeah, uh, as far as like it's it's a lot more deliberate than wrestling is. I've done wrestling well, I do wrestling and jujitsu, and between the two of them I think wrestling's probably a, a more quote-unquote practical thing just because it's based around starting on your feet and staying on your feet and putting somebody else off of their feet. But it, it's a lot more like athleticism-based where like how strong you are, explosive you are, fast you are. That, that's very important. Where I think jiu-jitsu is very technical where you can you need to know what you're doing. You can't just, like, explode and move quickly and power through things. You can to an extent. I mean, it is a combat sport, so your physical attributes are very important. But if you're making fast, spastic movements and you don't really know what you're doing, you can find yourself in in bad positions, you know? Whereas with wrestling, like, you know, just intuitively, you kind of know how to tackle somebody. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I'll look into it. I will I'll get
0: Yeah, I will absolutely be including this opening conversation in, in the podcast this time around. <laughs> I don't usually include the first five minutes, but this is going in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I listened to my last I listened to the last recording and I was like, damn, I stuttered a lot. So now I actually like wrote down a lot of my ideas and um I'm a little bit more prepared.
0: Yeah, we used to have a um, we used to do a podcast like as a as an actual podcast, and it sounds so great. But that's because we had somebody edit all the ums down and stuff. Because we were like, you know, <laughs> having organic conversations, and you listen to it, and you're like, wow, we sound really eloquent and stuff. And it's like, nah, the whole conversation was just like, oh, uh... <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> But yeah, I, I think that's another kind of benefit to having these as a, as a voice discussion is that, you know, it, typing obviously will practice your writing skills. But it's also useful to be able to, you know, speak, put your words into thought or put your thoughts into words and express yourself uh, verbally sometimes, you know. And this is kind of a practice of that, too.
1: Yeah, that's why I wrote, like, all my questions down. One for, like, keepsake, so I could come back to it. Um, But also, like, I know it's hard to, like, rebuttal stuff in the moment. And so, like, preferably I would rather, like, type stuff that I have questions on um, and get, like, really solid answers back to me. Um, Because, like, the interesting points I could bring up, you know the questions I don't want like for anybody on the spot, and that's what is like really hard when you get like a question that comes out of the blue, and you all of a sudden have to like intellectually <laughs> like find your way around it. I it's debates I can't do. Yeah, I think debates inherently are just reactionary.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm alright if you want to like, if you have specific hard questions or anything like that to to bring up during voice discussions. I I know you brought one up um, that was I mean it was a difficult question too earlier in the in the text chat, which is fine. Um, but yeah, if you want to bring them up in voice chat too, that's fine. I, and I do think it's a good practice to like have those questions written down because there are things that obviously you have questions about now, and if you ever Read this book again with a with another group, then you can have those questions, and maybe you've jotted down some kind of like quick answers to them. They make good discussion questions too to just kind of like spur conversation you know
1: yeah um, there's been like i want to say progress. I've just been like talking a lot with people from o d s a um, about the reading group and You know, it's a lot. Like, it's a lot to think about because there's a lot of problems logistically. It's like a lot of people will be coming in and coming out. So doing like a whole curriculum would be hard. And trying to just like um, logistically, because I really want there to be like a fundamental baseline. In the organization. Like an ideological baseline. Because um, you know people. At our meetings. will discuss and will bring up like. Hey maybe we should work with like businesses. <laughs> yeah. Like. <laughs> and, and like you know. Trying our best to like. Because um, you know. Just giving people like a quick one-sentence, two-sentence response isn't enough. Like, there's a lot of history and theory that goes into, like, organizing, especially since DSA is, like, a very big and expanding organization. I want, well, right now, us to cast a big nut, but, like, eventually to have, like, a consistent, um, consistent ideology behind us yeah and not just like random (laughs) yeah i get
0: you that was kind of uh what motivated me in general behind starting the 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 as i affectionately refer to it the school of marxist fundamentals um and and the curriculum in particular just i feel like it gives you a very strong baseline understanding of of marxism and gives you all the context needed to kind of understand Where the Soviet Union came from, where China is coming from, where, uh, like, the German Social Democrats went wrong and things like that over in Germany. And that's kind of, like, generally, like, your landmark references within Marxism of, like, most of the tendency splits happen, you know, between, like... Uh, I don't know. Communism and socialism happens around the World War One thing, around the Social Democrats splitting the uh, the Second International. You got your uh, Leninism, Trotskyism, Stalinism kind of thing around that time, or I mean, not that time, but like a little bit later that we kind of look at. You got uh, like your your stuff going on in China. You, we have like all the landmarks there, so it's like. So this is the context, and if you've got the context, then it's going to make reading stuff by these people on more abstract theoretical things a lot more meaningful. I think.
1: Yeah. I um, my idea, at the very least, is like, at the very very least, is to have like the people on committee are actually running the organization not so much the members but people on committees that have that fundamental um understanding but like again people will be coming on and off committee so how do we do it in a way that's like effective
0: yeah <laughs> it's hard. i don't disagree with you i think that it You need a multilateral approach, basically, and reading groups like this, I mean, like you and I are the only people here right now. These things tend to be very low retention, but the people who go through them and stick with them will have a deep theoretical understanding of things us recording this podcast and releasing it that way, people are going to hear this discussion, listen to it, and they're going to learn something about the history of the Russian Revolution. Maybe they'll be motivated to go read it at their own pace, maybe they'll be motivated to join us, but maybe this is all they get from it. And that's fine too, we'll try to have a good honest discussion, give a lot of context about everything so that someone listening and not reading along will be able to say something that they know something about the history of the Russian revolution. So that's it's another layer where it's like less involved from having to meet and commit to a uh, read and meet commit to a meeting time on a weekly basis. Another thing I'm kind of doing on the side, which I haven't spoken about before yet, but I'm putting together like a presentation where I'm hoping that I can kind of condense specific histories, the ones that we go through, the history of the Russian Revolution, the history of the German Revolution, and the history of the Chinese Revolution. And I'm doing it very slowly, I'm doing it at the pace that we're reading this just so it's not too much of an extra strain on me, but I'm hoping to kind of try and see if my local dsa would be interested after i'm finished and me presenting this and just seeing how long it would take and then if i could do it virtually i could do it kind of wherever if there's an interest in that sort of thing and it would be again a low commitment thing where you could just show up and listen and we'll discuss for like x amount of time at the end you know
1: yeah that's a really good idea i like that a lot
0: uh, but anyway, I mean, we're we're definitely past the five minutes now. It is just the two of us, so I, I figured I'd let our conversation linger just because with two people, I think we'll be finished discussing the content of the chapter pretty quickly. So uh, do, do you want to try to take a crack at talking about the the first chapter that we were reading this week, the, the peasantry and the proletariat? Or I can talk about it. Up to you.
1: Um, sure. So what I got from it was like, Um, really, like, this idea of how in need the peasantry is of, like, a proletariat um, class to sort of guide them, essentially, in their, um, in the revolutionary uh, movement. Um, Basically, throughout this chapter, I believe, he, like, mentions how um, the French and the English and the Germany, Ger- Germans had their, um, own, uh, revolutions, but how they were never able to, um, overdo or undo capitalism because of where I think the English, the, um, capitalism just went through too slowly. Like it went over three revolutions. With France, um, the peasantry was kind of seduced by um, the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, and then in Germany, um, I believe it was—I uh, I don't remember what Germany was. I can look really quickly.
0: I was going to say, there's a, there's a section right at the end. There's a paragraph for each of those three that you mention. Yeah.
1: Uh, Germany, German proletariat had too little time to organize the peasantry against the bourgeois uh, agrarian reform. So it was like these, um, like, just sort of conditional um, problems that these uh, countries had that didn't let them fulfill like a complete revolution but um for germany he says that basically um it was like it came too uh he said something like it was too late um the the yeah the peasant revolution came too late and like the um Capitalists' uh, formation came to too soon or something like that. Um, basically, it was like the most extreme of circumstances, which made Russian Revolution very, very optimal.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like you said, the, it's interesting the way Trotsky traces the if we count the Russian Revolution, the four movements of the peasantry as it relates to, in England's case, an emerging bourgeoisie and emerging capitalism that hadn't, I mean, it got its foothold first in England, obviously, uh, and and it needed the help of the peasantry to establish itself there. In in France, there was already uh, an emerging kind of bourgeoisie as capitalism was already established in England, so The capitalists in France had to struggle against the uh, royal absolutism and aristocracy and princes of the church, and they recruited the peasants promising them the land if they would fight in their revolution, basically, and they would overthrow the monarchy, and the peasants got the land out of the deal, so they were able to um, have that sort of peasant revolution, and they got their own land, and the capitalists got political power, and overthrew yeah they got political power out of the story so they can institute their own political freedoms freedom of property and things like that where in germany like you said they were they were just too late the bourgeoisie they're too late the um capitalism had developed too much at that point and the monarchy and so forth that france was able to overthrow the bourgeoisie was not capable of doing with the peasants' help. They they were too entwined with the interests of the landlords that they could not recruit the peasants against the monarchy, while simultaneously having hostile interests to the monarchy, and they just kind of like flatlined. Where in Russia, the capitalists were almost exclusively foreign. Like all of the super big factories are foreign owned. And it's primarily the landlords and the aristocracy that that's running the show in Russia. So there's almost no the, the bourgeoisie that existed in Russia. We're talking about like lawyers and doctors and things like that who aren't really like super big factory owning. They're more like petite bourgeois kind of people. They're like historians and professors and things like that. Um so in Russia the peasantry didn't even have the opportunity to rally behind a capitalist class revolution. The only class that was capable of directing the peasant war in Russia was the proletariat. They were the only one that could direct them against the landowners and direct them against the the capitalists as well. And it winds up being the problem of the Russian Revolution that the proletariat in Russia is a extreme minority compared to the peasantry because basically the proletariat is sitting at the head of like this peasant title uprising that happens across the entire Russian nation. And it will define pretty much every decision that Russia makes moving forward. Everything is done with the fact that they are a tiny minority sitting on top of a massive peasant country. Uh, But some of the things I thought interesting too from this chapter, uh, particularly at the beginning, was Trotsky kind of giving us that table about the number of thousands of participants in political strikes from year to year. And he starts from the year 1903 and traces it all the way up to 1917. And you can see very clearly the huge spike at 1905 during that 1905 revolution. Um, but what was interesting after it dies down, it almost spikes back up again in 1914. But then World War I broke out and it kind of paralyzed the the political life of the country because everybody's like reorienting themselves to the situation the the demographics got disrupted a lot of people got drafted conscripted to the army the most active elements got separated from their organic base so everything was kind of discombobulated and everybody needed some time to reorient themselves to the new conditions that they faced and it took them like well about three years you know 1917 three years later and and that's where he shows that the strikes start picking up again so I thought that was really interesting the way he's, he's using that data to just chart the, the revolution and explain why and how things have happened here and there.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's also, there was one part that um, he said something along the lines, um, um that they still remember like they still had like psychological defeat from like the first failed uprising revolution like all the strikes and being put down from there and how basically they kind of learned from their mistake and like um i mean that's what i got from it was like they organized a little bit better. They weren't very prepared the first time, but the second time around, they came back and they were like a lot more prepared. They knew what they were going to do, and they're a lot bigger, yeah, because of it.
0: And that's, um, kind of a, de- a depressing fact that the German bourgeois were able to learn better from the Russian Revolution than the uh, German proletariat was because the German bourgeois was very quick to decapitate the the movement they obviously assassinated Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht they they knew that if you get rid of not just the leaders but like it, it's not just the fact that they've like decapitated and taken care of the leaders it's that they're getting rid of like this institutional knowledge that's like concretized in these leaders who have this experience have studied things and are able to bring historical experience to the table. If you can get rid of like the memory of the working class, then you can kind of destroy the only thing the working class is capable of bringing to the table. Uh, like like you said, they were able to, in 1917, these were the same people who did things in 1905 and they're like, okay, Soviets, yeah, we'll do that again because that was a really good idea, but we've got experience and we're going to do it a little different this time and now we know how to run these things. It's kind of funny, the, the leaders of the 1905 Soviet, they just got exiled to Siberia, most of them, like Trotsky, they just sent him off to Siberia, they didn't execute the guy, like, nothing. That's a really good uh, thing to bring up. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, something I think is pretty interesting. Trotsky makes the comment about the the Petrograd Committee of the Bolshevik Party in the Duma. They had, let's see, three out of seven of their members of the Duma, of the Bolsheviks Duma members, were actually police spies, which isn't like, a knock on the Bolsheviks, like, oh, you guys can't keep cops out of your ranks, it's, if anything, a credit to the, and I hate using this word, the discipline of the party, because they were a party that's like, look, if you're not fighting for our program, if you're not doing the correct actions or whatever, we're going to kick you out, and that in itself helps prevent the negative effects of police infiltration, because, if they've got police in their group but they're forcing them to do revolutionary work, then it's kind of like, okay, the cops are doing our work for us. That's that's fine, because if they weren't doing the work, they'd get kicked out of the party. Which which isn't to say that if you discover there are cops in your organization, you shouldn't kick them out because you should. But it it's just kind of amusing that you can uh literally use government funds to, you know, uh, run the revolution a little bit there. Um but but it's just I think an important lesson, I think, because, like, in the modern day, a lot of people are sometimes, like, paranoid about police infiltration. And it's, like, it's inevitable. Sorry, the state has way more resources than us. They're going to put people in our groups. That's That's just what they do. The best way to fight it is to have a good program and to be consistent and disciplined with it don't tolerate like the the types of strategies they use that they bring up like like misogyny or like racism or something like don't tolerate that shit if it's tearing your organization apart you get rid of those factors right like you'll get rid of most cops just by having basic human decency and not tolerating misogyny and like racism and stuff like that yeah one of
1: um One of my favorite um, factoids is that I believe it was the CIA is helped fund Castro's, like, training in Mexico. And so it's, like, you could use their money sometimes (laughs) to fight them, Um, which, you know, is oftentimes, like, oh, I don't want to use, like, this program or this organization's money, which is, like, very very principled but at the same time like if you can if you can use their money and um still do revolutionary work you should you should do that <laughs> i personally believe that you should use yeah as long um, as you can take advantage that money of those resources a in a principled work.
0: manner that's that's consistently like pro working class you're not making any sacrifices anywhere then i think that's fine But if it's a thing where it's like, you know, use this money for this, but you're going to have to stop your work in this area, then I think that's where you run into problems, you know? Let me see. I had another note. Let me read this real quick. Yeah, Trotsky points out how the Bolshevik faction in the Duma at the outbreak of the war did kind of go along with the, uh, you know, de- defending, let's see, what does the quote say exactly? To defend the cultural wheel of the people against all attacks whatsoever originating, which is not in line with Lenin's defeatist line, obviously. Um, and that's kind of a foreshadowing of. The crisis that happens in the Bolshevik party later in April, when Lenin kind of really rocks the boat. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that you can see a foreshadowing of a later crisis early on, where you have the, the Bolshevik Duma kind of going along with the with the war hysteria. But also it speaks to just how disorienting the war was to everybody once it broke out. It it kind of rattled everybody. Um well it didn't rattle everybody obviously Lenin and most of the um Zimmerwald left were on point with that, but it rattled a ton of people, so I think that's a pretty good uh, discussion just of that first chapter. So since you did that first one, I'll take over the second one. The summary: the these other chapter we read was the Tsar and the Tsarina, which was a deep dive psychological examination of the Tsar and the Tsarina. Not just psychological, um, but also kind of like where the historical surroundings of and and why these things have caused Nicholas II to be such a droll human being. Which is pretty much the content of this chapter. It's that. Tsar Nicholas was a soulless husk of a human, and his diary is filled with the most boring entries that are basically just like a physiological description of his day. And he's completely unaffected by all of these world-shattering events and the fall of his dynasty, because he is soulless, so why would it bother someone who doesn't have a soul? Um... It's, it's almost more interesting the Tsarina and <laughs> Rasputin, their dynamic, because the Tsar is kind of a weak-willed person, and the Tsarina kind of tells the Tsar what to do, and the person tell, informing the Tsarina is Rasputin, who is this, like, crack job conspiracy theorist, kind of, like, not really a conspiracy theorist, he's just, like, this hyper religious guy. He's just a drunkard who just kind of like sleeps around and takes advantage of um the fact that he's got the ear of the czarina and and it's really kind of funny how they've they've fallen into this like superstitious kind of kind of thinking because they have no real ability to control their their situation. But I'll let, I'll let you make some comments too. Yeah,
1: um a very funny chapter <laughs> very a lot of good quotes in this one um but what i mostly got out of it was like how really like the um the rulers the despotic despotic rulers just, just sort of killed themselves like they really just shut themselves in and let the rest of the world do its thing which you know, for Russia at this time, we trying to liberate themselves was a great thing, right? Like, this is like the best opportunity you can have. Not only that, the royalty were shutting themselves in um, and taking advice from, you know, Rasputin, like a random, <laughs> like a random guy they picked off the street, um, but also just like dismantling their own. Nobility and like firing anybody that didn't, that actually had a brain and putting in people who were just completely loyal. Um, And for me, I was like reading this with like almost like envy (laughs) because, you know, now we're so far developed that even if, let's say, Joe Biden closed himself into the White House and like decided to like pick a terrible cabinet there's still a thousand other agencies and institutions that would uphold the presidency or uphold the empire and so how easy russia had it they had like they had a really good chance like if they messed up (laughs) if they messed up this revolution i I don't think it's an any, interesting comment. Trotsky said something to the effect Marxism.
0: after. Obviously, he didn't survive to see World War II, but everybody kind of saw World War II coming. But he said that people, or he personally, would be forced to abandon Marxism if after World War II, a new wave of revolutions did not sweep the globe. So maybe the guy would have abandoned Marxism after that. Kind of kind of interesting to think about. Oh. Yeah.
1: hmm same <laughs>
0: but yeah um basically i mean like the only solution these people had to any of their problems because anytime like strikes or anything break out they they just want to come down on it with like an iron fist they just constantly want to just just shoot them all that's their answer to everything It's just repress the strike close them down shoot them all round them up you know like which makes it kind of interesting and confusing why they didn't just execute the leaders of the 1905 soviet but i mean i'm not complaining but yeah they that was kind of their only answer to everything they didn't ever have like a (laughs) well thought out calculated plan or anything like that and anytime such a plan came from somebody it it came from like like a They they come they have like a different land reform kind of strategy where they're like oh well we can get the peasants to split off their commune by offering to let them buy plots of land in this little subdivision division in the commune and nah that's not the way that the czar would have done that he's like nah just tax them if they refuse to pay it just go in there and smash some heads you know like that's that's this guy's approach you know so it it constantly prodded the revolution forward because it it's not an effective yeah. ruling strategy in the long run you can't just constantly hit with the iron fist it doesn't work that way if you're not trying to sew divisions and you're not trying to create different sides to play against each other you're you're not going to stay in power very long but it's the only play that they had as an aristocracy because trying to create those different sides to play against each other would involve creating a different class which would be like the capitalist class and they can't do that because they would be kind of creating their own successor and that's they want to stay where they're at so the only answer they have is just keep things the way they are just fucking kill the people who are (laughs) messing things up
1: (laughs) yeah uh, i would say that the third chapter is like setting up this big movement right like there's these people that are like um revolting for the second time (laughs) a terrible war that's like polarizing the country and like um a whole bunch of pieces are being moved and um plots are being schemed and everything is in perfect order for a revolution and then the fourth chapter is just like a complete flop of the royalty to like function in any sort of capacity um, which I you know, I think if if anything, at the very least, it's great writing like this yeah is...
0: if if anything can be said about trotsky, not I, just like I, poetic political <laughs> maybe the best pin that has ever been animated by Marxism before, like. After you read other stuff, after the Trotsky stuff, you're like, damn. Like, he has a wit to what he has. He has a very dry sarcasm and an irony, and it, 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 he has a very good humor to him. Uh, but yeah, you're not wrong. Like, it's structured very well the way it's written. And after, I think, next week's discussion, will be, we'll have some of these pieces moving now. We'll actually get to the fall of the monarchy. And then after that, we'll get some actual... Uh, mass movement kind of stuff going on, because right now, like I said before, we're just kind of setting up the pieces on the board, you know, you now you kind of understand the situation in Russia, even if you were coming into this with no understanding before, you kind of have the idea, you know, it's a massive peasant nation, shit's going wild, it went wild before, so now they know what they're doing, except for the monarchy, who's just uh, a <laughs> broken record, playing the same tune over and over again, they can't do anything different, I I think it gives a pretty good position or an understanding of what's happening now. And now we're going to kind of start moving forward to to see how it plays out now that the board has been set a little bit. So that's nice. I am looking ahead at the next two chapters. I think if if this pace of reading is okay for you, I think we can do two more chapters again for next week. Does that look doable for you?
1: Uh, let me check. I mean, it should be. Yeah, I can do that.
0: Look, I do it all it's online. Like 20th- I have no idea how many pages. <laughs> pages, I
1: think. Is it? For each chapter? <laughs> uh,. Yeah, like 30
0: ish something yeah i mean you're the one here so your your opinion is vastly important
1: (laughs) i can say for myself i'll read it
0: (laughs) i know mugs has a has a schedule sometimes he can make it sometimes not Uh, so he may be around (laughs) next time around you know he'll, he'll probably drop in and out that's kind of been his his attendance but i know he reads along and i'm sure he'll listen too so we we are speaking to mug too he is here in spirit And maybe some other folk, you know, you get busy from time to time. So it just happens. That's, that's the <laughs> kind of nice thing about having this recorded so people can listen to it so they can, you know, they'll be caught up with everything that was said.
1: Yeah, of course. I, um, yeah. Apparently, I'm not working. So. That's kind of an advantage. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, uh, unless you had any it's other advantage kind of thoughts to read or advantage to show interesting up. to pull out. That's kind of all I was interested to point out or talk about. Mm. Cool. Not really. Well, we can we can end um, things early. I think. I think Banfield Panda will be rejoining us not next week, but the following week. I know they had finals, so they were kind of hunkering down for that. I'm actually dreading their return because it means I'm going to have to go back to reading Volume 2 with them. And Volume 2 of Capital is miserable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking of going backwards. So when I was um, starting out, I bought Marx Illustrated, um, a book called Marx. Marx um, Mark's is something sure. illustrated. Um, it like a very very beginner guide with like pictures and stuff like that. Um, didn't read it. Started reading it like the past, like I think yesterday or the day before and already 50 pages in going by really quickly after that reading um like an introduction to marxism i'm um, between two books um one of them is a fairly recent book from cambridge 2022 the logic, let me An introduction to Marxist economic theory: the logic of capital by sure. Paner Vassil. I don't know if I'm going to read that one or another one that somebody suggested to me, but um, I'll go backwards. I'll read like the very basic illustration book, like a little bit more. Uh, More dense and then once I find enough people to like do uh do a curriculum because I feel like I can find enough people to like do this curriculum with me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I generally Um, tend to recommend reading Capital Volume (laughs) One, at least (laughs) kind of on its own. It's um or not on its own, but just like maybe without kind of other like I, I don't think it's in it insurmountable task to read Capital Volume 1. I think a lot of people are intimidated by it, but once you get past those first three chapters, those are the kind of difficult ones, the difficulty is front-loaded. After that, it's kind of like, oh, okay. It's not too bad after that. And it's not just like an economic work. I think some people kind of think it's just going to be like a straight economic work, but I mean, like, he touches on a lot of different stuff from history to, like, philosophy kind of stuff, and it's like, oh, there's a lot of stuff in here. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah that's i think i actually enjoy reading economics it's the european history that gets to me like yeah and hopefully i get this, this course odd. this
0: reading et cetera, et cetera, will give you lots um, of context that will be necessary for but, that sort of thing because trotsky too in, in the history of the russian revolution is gonna make i mean he's already made references to the English serfdom, the French Revolution, and the German 1848 Revolution. So, like, he kind of gives a little bit of context here and there for things going out and compares it to what's going on in Russia, too. So, it'll it'll hopefully give you a little bit more of a bearing in Europe, and then when we read some stuff about Germany, that should help as well.
1: Yeah. It's something I've avoided (laughs) for a long time. And so now I have to, like, actually do the work of learning European history. All right, so, yeah, we'll
0: do the uh, two chapters for next week. We can can adjourn (laughs) slightly early. I must. uh, I'll I'll get this super awesome podcast episode out, which has an amazing opening that everybody will love to listen to. All right, take care.
1: Of course. <laughs> All right, bye-bye.